Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 129, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. I was going to say how nice it is to be in this lovely air-conditioned studio tonight. I've seen photos of the world melting. Have you seen pictures in Australia with the roads melting? Even in Ireland, they had some some of the tarmac going up. It's been ridiculously warm. And I mean, here in the UK, I think it's been around 30 degrees Celsius, which to people abroad might sound like what you want about, you know, that's, that's like our winter. Well, my fiance's from South America. Yeah. She's kind of like, oh, the sun here is so intense. And I think it's, we've probably got a big ozone hole above <laughs> us or something. And we don't have air conditioning in most of our houses. No, no. You know, so, which is why it's nice to be in this cool studio this evening. And I've got my legs out, Ravi, so I'll keep them under the desk. So, oh, please. Don't shock you too much. Uh, but we do what I say on this show, and we do it every Friday. And we kind of t- cover so much on this podcast. We're kind of tagged as like retro gaming on a lot of podcast services. But really, I mean, as we say in the introduction every week, retro gaming and technology. Exactly. We're kind of interested in all the areas of it. You know, we've had the coders, designers, but we've had the CEOs of companies on. We've had the crackers who have cracked the software and we've had the people who have been making the piracy protection so (laughs) we've had every angle of kind of retro tech and all that nerdy stuff and let's talk about the industry in general i mean without our guest today there is a very good chance that personal computing would not be in any way shape or form what it is today and in fact there is an interview quite a rare steve jobs interview if you watch it on youtube i think it's from 1994 if i can find it i'll put it in the uh, the show description but he actually says that without John Draper, a.k.a. Captain Crunch, who is our guest today, Apple computers would probably not exist. Well, it was the start of the microcomputers, wasn't it? And that was kind of, you know, without these people experimenting and playing around with the systems, uh, maybe in mischievous ways, (laughs) you know, we wouldn't have got to where we are at the moment. Well, Captain Crunch, he is the very definition of a hacker. You know, that, what they used to call people who were interested in technology, fiddling around with well, it. It's a hobbyist hardware hacker. That's yeah. what they used to call them, yeah. Well, he got his name, because people are like Captain Crunch. It's a bit of a weird name. It was a cereal, a breakfast cereal in America. And you remember back in the day, cereals would give away little toys. Yeah, you'd always get a little gift, wouldn't you? And he found a little whistle inside that just happened to blow a tone that was 2,600 hertz. Yeah, so the tone 2,600 hertz would basically tell the telephone you know, to start receiving these beeps and kind of different signals, which could be used to switch stuff, to go onto different exchanges. So that eventually turned into the blue box, which we're going to hear a lot more about, which was uh, Apple's first product, wasn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, Steve Jobs and Wozniak actually sold blue boxes that they bought from John Draper to found Apple, essentially. Yeah, to, to the fund company. the first motherboard. Yeah. So we're going to hear all about that. This is a, a real historic episode, this one. Yeah, and without, you know, John, this iPhone in my hand, this MacBook that we're recording the show on, none of this would exist. So this is really a guy who sowed the seeds of what became the richest company in the world, which Apple are today. But as you'll hear in the interview, John himself is not a wealthy man by any stretch of the imagination. So we'll find out the story of maybe why that happened. Um, some really interesting stories about the early days of the Homebrew Computer Club. And of course, his new biography and book, which just looks absolutely fantastic. Yeah, this is called Beyond the Little Blue Box. So he has got a book that you can order now from Indiegogo. We'll talk to him more about the book as well. I ordered my copy last week, so I'm really excited to get hold of it. And we can't wait to have him on. John Draper, a.k.a. Captain Crunch, is going to be our guest on the Retro Hour podcast in around 15 minutes from now. Now, before we get to our guest, um, with the show, we always talk about what's been happening in the world of retro gaming and technology. We've got some really cool stories to tell you about in just a moment. But if you are a fan of this show, the reason that we can come in here every week and do a weekly retro gaming and technology podcast is thanks to the support of our very generous donators. Now, we do have a little link that you can find on the front page of our website, theretrohour.com. You can donate via PayPal or cryptocurrency. Yeah, if you donate via PayPal, you can leave a little note in there for us. But if you want to do it anonymously, you can just do it by cryptocurrency. And we really don't mind what you donate. It doesn't yeah. need to be regular or anything. You could just like something we say or, or hate something and even just <laughs> donate something to us. I hate you guys. Us. Have a fiver. Yeah. <laughs> fiver to shut up, Ravi. <laughs> yeah, but we do have... It's a tip jar, essentially, isn't it? Yeah, so that's it. Yeah. Everything we get goes back into the running of the podcast. And just for making a donation, big or small you will find your place in the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Just like... Paul Terry. Powell Mikulak. Greg Girk. And Eric Dowerhair, who all made donations into the running of the show this week. And you can do the same and get a mention on a future episode by heading to theretrohour.com. Now, before we chat to Captain Crunch, 
I love this. And these are programs that I've been looking for for years. And all you could get before was kind of little clips here and there on YouTube. But now the BBC have opened up their archives of the Computer Literacy Project. Now, this is really interesting. I don't know if you're going to be able to see these outside of the UK. I would suggest using a proxy server if you can't. I imagine some of our new listeners today may be able to figure out a way. Oh, yeah, sure. (laughs) And um, it's amazing because the BBC are notorious for destroying footage. So there used to be a policy at the BBC which was called a record over the tapes. And basically they would record over it. And a lot of the time people were obsessed with trains. Mm. So you'd get lots of footage of trains recorded over and over again and stuff so it's amazing to see the whole computer literacy program coming out online well you mentioned then about them recording other stuff i mean famously there have been episodes of doctor who that have been lost for yeah, example yeah, didn't see the value uh, dad's army yeah. there was a Jimi hendrix performance has lost yeah. you know trains <laughs> the top. yeah they didn't see the value in it which is great i mean i didn't think this survived but essentially, I mean, for, if you're outside the UK or maybe too young to remember it, in the 1980s, um, the BBC were involved with the government and uh, the national curriculum here in schools in the UK for a thing called the Computer Literacy Project. So they commissioned a home computer that was the Acom BBC Micro. And essentially, together with the national curriculum in schools, they also had television programmes that would essentially educate the public about this new thing, microcomputers. And this ran from 1980 to 1989. Now, there are 146 episodes um, of all these classic programmes that you can watch. I was watching some earlier, mate, and they had about, oh, my God, it was fantastic. They had about the spectrum... Spectrum, how yeah. it was created in a squat by these two guys. They they had about Japanese markets. They have so such a variety that happened in those years with technology. You know the the pace of change and also some of the awful inventions you can check out on that. <laughs> yeah, that never saw the light of day yeah. outside that program. I mean, one of the most interesting programs that I've been watching a few episodes of recently is that BBC Micro Live. Now, they used to broadcast this live, a live program on television. It was about two hours long. And they would essentially, you know, teach you programming, explore new technology. And there is a really famous clip that um, I'll put this in the show notes because you've got to check it out. There is also a version on YouTube of the very first live hack that happened on British television. Oh, wow. And this is where they're exploring a bulletin board service. Now, check this out. I'll play a little clip of it here. Password is. So, no cameras on the keyboard, please. The password is that. And Telecom Gold, Automated Office Services, we're through. Mail call... <laughs> Computer security error. I think Illegal we have access. some hackers. I think you tempted some hackers <laughs> rather too well. Uh, Illegal access. I hope your television program runs as smoothly as my program worked out your <laughs> passwords. Nothing is secure. Hacker's song. Put another password in, vomit <laughs> out and try again. Try to get past logging in. We're hacking, hacking, hacking. <laughs> How amazing is that? That is mad. And that was on live BBC television. And it, it sounds so old school, BBC as well. Oh, we're being hacked. <laughs> and even watching stuff like Fred Harris uh, talking about the, the Amiga 1000 when he got that machine in and he's exploring it, or the first Acon Archimedes with Risk OS and talking about how to use a mouse and stuff like that. It's so interesting. It's, it's interesting as well because I saw the Micro Live stuff and I was like, oh, cool, because I, I follow Micro Live and I've looked at a lot of the old yeah. episodes, but there's lots of other stuff that has come out that's I've never even heard of. You know, there's some crazy series there. Yeah, the Silicon Factor, Managing the Micro, Computers in Control, Electronic Office, The Learning Machine, with a little help from the chips. There's so many programs. Yeah, yeah I haven't seen, you know, 90% of these. And I'm working my way through the archives. We, we need to have like a, a binge watch for a week or something <laughs> where we just sit there and just get all this knowledge from the BBC. I kind of did that last Friday. I was up till about four in the morning, thought, yeah, I'll watch one more episode. (laughs) It's very addictive, though. But like you said, it really did chart the most interesting time in technology when it was a golden age and everything was changing so quickly. And it seems kind of quaint now to look at it. It does. If you're a nerd, you're going to find it really interesting. If if you walk into a room like my fiancé did and saw it on the screen, you're going to think it's probably the most boring thing you've ever seen in your life. (laughs) Do you remember Look Around You? Yeah. It was on the BBC. That was kind of a Mickey take, wasn't it, of those old shows? Uh, some of those clips are amazing. There's one of a, a, a girl's computer called the Petticoat 500, I think it's called. And you can file your nails on it. So that's worth a watch as well to view those on YouTube. So we'll link up all of that in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, we do this show in Nottingham in England. And famously, we had the UK's only national video game arcade here. And we've had, you know, the guys from the NBA on the show before. 
But it turns out we might have a little 50-minute uh, journey up the M1 if we want to go very soon. Yeah, had is the prime word there. Yeah. Um, they run Game City, which is a really cool festival in Nottingham. I hope it stays in Nottingham, but I, I think they're probably going to move it. And the whole place is moving to Sheffield. It's quite sad to see it go, actually, for us. But um, Well done, Sheffield. It, it, well done, Sheffield. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's uh, basically because the building that they're in, as, as in England... Uh, it's pretty old school. Yeah, it's a listed building, isn't <laughs> it's it? It's a listed building. So any changes that they have to do on the building, it has to be like architecturally agreed on. Yeah, it's w- a pain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, with the heritage people and all of this stuff. So that's even, you know, putting up a poster. So, yeah. um, I, I can think, see why. I can see why they've moved. And it, it's a good place, the National Video Game Arcade. Um, they're now supported by the National Video Game Arcade Foundation. Mm-hmm which has got groups like Sega involved in game, I think I was game that, Sumo yeah. Digital yeah. Mm-hmm. as well. So uh, I hope that continues, and I can't wait to make some trips to Sheffield now. Well, I think, you know, like you said, the fact that they've been based in this building that had so many restrictions on them. I mean, I've been in there before, and I always got the impression that if they had more room, they'd have more stuff out. Yeah, you know, permanently. Yeah. It was very I, I've been in based. the back rooms there, yeah, and they're rammed full of stuff, and it's just like, they can't get it out, and you know, I, I think it, I think they're going to do well in Sheffield because Sheffield has a great background of music and stuff, and they do all your bass music festival, which we did a panel that last yeah. year, and that that could work in well with Sheffield. So, so it's going to close in Nottingham in September, then reopen in Sheffield in October. So it's not going to be closed for very long, and it's going to be based in the uh, Collider Building in the Castlegate area of Sheffield. So, uh, I mean, for us, it's only an hour of the M1, like I said, isn't it? So yeah. we'll, uh, I'm sure we'll still be involved in them and have them on the podcast regularly. Now, let's talk about this really cool service that if you can't be bothered with emulators and downloading ROMs and everything, there is now essentially what they're calling the Netflix of retro video games. The Netflix of retro video games. Yes, it's called Antstream. And Ant- Interesting name. Yeah, Antstream isn't available yet for Steam, but uh, uh, no, for Google Play. Okay but it will be soon and they're going to be doing Apple approval as well. Now, it looks really interesting. I've not seen this concept before of streaming games. Um, it's pretty cool. They've got, like, I'm just looking on the site now. It's one account. You can use it on many devices, so you can obviously have it on your tablets, your PC at home, on your television, on a little Android box or something. And the titles they've got here, they've got Marble Madness, Pit Fighter, Joust, Mortal Kombat, Zool 2, California Games, Defender. So I'm guessing they've got the rights to these and they must be emulating lots of dis- different systems. Yeah, it looks like they've got Midway, Williams, Atari, Epic, Data Re- It says they're all officially licensed yeah. as well. So essentially you pay a monthly subscription and then you can play it on all your devices. All your devices, but they also have leaderboards. So you're going to be able to play against people on Antstream. They're also going to have, you know, uh, challenges as well. So there may be additional ideas of gameplay. And I think this is quite a cool concept because... I've seen a lot of streaming devices before where they're streaming games. It works quite well, but with modern stuff, it's really like... There's a lot of data to say. A lot yeah. of data, yeah. and you've really got to get it fast. But old stuff, I think, I think that should... It seems to be ideally suited for it, really. And what I do like about the idea is the fact that a lot of these old games never had online play built into them. Yeah. So it opens up a new avenue there, I mean... You know, my brother and I, we used to regularly go to the arcade and play games together. And, I mean, you can kind of, you can do this already on Xbox Live and that kind of thing. But I haven't seen any word on what the fee is going to be, the monthly fee on here. I think if it's affordable enough, it'll be attractive. If it's the same price as, like, PSN or Xbox Live. And I think these are the two biggest points of it. Mm. No downloads and no fiddly emulators. Yeah. You know, because setting up emulators is a nightmare if you have to get every single system... You know, you think about that. If you have Marble Madness, Pit Fighter, Mortal Kombat and Zool 2, how many different systems do you have for that? <laughs> well, I mean, you're right there because if you want to do it by the book, there is no real legal way to get all those ROMs and get it all played on a system. I mean, you know, I, I set up a, uh, a Raspberry Pi with um, RetroPie on there recently. Yeah. And I spent like a whole day trying to get it made. And then even downloading the ROMs off an Abandonware site. Abandonware is not strictly a legal term you know they're still copyrighted games so i thought well i might as well just go on like a, a torrent website and get a massive download which i did in the end yeah and that was easier than setting it all up but trying to do it manually and if you want to do it legally and then i can't play it on my iphone 
you know, it, it's on this Raspberry Pi device I've only got at home. So I think there is something in that. I'd be interested to see. I think they've got to get the pricing right, though. It's the most they've got to get thing. the pricing right. They've got to get it on the Apple Store, and it's got to be fast and it's got to work. Yeah. So we'll but if it does, you know, that's a really interesting thing for me. Absolutely. So we'll keep an eye on that, and, uh, of course, we'll update you in a future episode of the podcast. Now, before we get into our special guest, Captain Crunch, John Draper, uh, this is quite timely. There's a call here on uh, vice.com, um, a blog called Motherboard on here, where they need to, um, they're basically calling for the dictionary to change the definition of a hacker. Yes, very interesting, because uh, they're saying that the maliciousness behind hacking should yeah. should not actually be in there. And that's, that's uh, here they have the official dictionary definition of a hacker, which is a person who uses computers to gain unauthorized access to data. Now, originally the hackers were the guys at the Homebrew Computer Club who were hardware hackers, they were building the machines and they were exploring with hardware. They were hacking it together. So it's interesting. Where do you think this kind of idea of maliciousness has come from it? Um, I think Hollywood. Hollywood yeah. and... Documentaries. Cases like Kevin Mitnick, you know, Scare Stories, uh, Esquire article that we're about to talk about, you know. Well, I think, you know, if you, if you ask someone to show you a picture of a stereotypical hacker. These days, it's the guys in the vendetta masks, isn't it? Like, well, you know, typing on a, a Matrix-like screen with a keyboard. Or, or they have a film, a Hollywood film, and they go, oh, it's okay, he's a white-haired hacker. <laughs> <laughs> or the zooming down tunnels and all that. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I've gained access to the Gibson. But there's like, there's like two levels now, isn't there? White hack and black hat yeah. hacker. Yeah, where I think hacker just should be someone who explores things. You know, a lot of cases of hacking have been... People, for example, there was uh, Gary McKinnon, the guy in the UK who uh, had autism, and he he actually hacked into one of NASA's systems, but he he wasn't aware of what he was doing at the time, and he just wanted to explore. So, it's there's there's a lot of questions around hacking and kind of what malicious intent means as well. well I it, think you know terms do change over time. And you I mean, know, he was looking for aliens. Yeah. So I don't know if that's malicious intent. Getting or, into NASA or, or Yeah, you know. <laughs> well, I mean, dictionary.com have got both definitions. They say a hacker is either a person who's got a high level of skill in computer technology or programming, a computer expert or an enthusiast. And that is kind of the more traditional mm, yeah. definition of it, isn't it? You know, someone who's just like, you know, hobbyist essentially. But they also say, and a person who circumnavigates security and breaks into a network. Terms, with, malicious it, uh, with malicious intent, they always add at the end, yeah. But yeah, I mean, terms and definitions do change over time. Mm. So I can see it might be quite a challenge to get that reversed. But I think it is right that they at least give both sides to it. That's it. I think now that governments have groups of hackers that are employed, yeah. they have cyber wars going on. I know people that are working within the cyber war, and it's it's like, you know, how can they be malicious if they're being employed by, you know, America or Britain or GCHQ? It's It's a weird thing. And I think as the internet's becoming more of a stronger thing and everybody's getting more of it in their life i think hacking is going to change and it's going to be seen as more of a talent than a, well, I mean, a kind of a malicious uh, already security is a massive industry isn't it and to be fair as we know often the best security experts are the ones who found the exploits in the first place kevin mitnick yeah. he founded his own security consultation yeah. as well yeah so did john draper as well you know well we're going to find out more very soon aren't we i mean hacking how it can turn into a billion dollar industry and uh, how it can be used for good as well so i think it's a good point to uh, get into this week's special guest thank you for checking out the news in episode 129 you can get all of those stories that we talked about on our website theretrohour.com next week's podcast will be out on friday but right now let's get some stories from the earliest days of phone freaking computer hacking the homebrew computer club the foundation of Apple computers with this week's special guest, John Draper, a.k.a. Captain Crunch. You're listening to the Retro L podcast and it's time to welcome on one of our most iconic guests that we've had on the podcast. It is my pleasure to welcome John Draper, a.k.a. Captain Crunch. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Now, we were talking just before we started recording. Um, you actually lived here in the UK for a while. Yeah, I was there from 1956 until 1957. I was living in uh, Birchington, uh, Minis 
Bay, uh, kind of near Margate, Dover, kind of in that general general vicinity of the UK. And I'd go swimming in the North Sea. Uh, it was a beautiful small little community. I was living on the uh, on the community and stuff like that. And my dad was at, at Manston Air Force Base, which is now an RAF base. Well, let's get into um, obviously. You're very well known in the phone freaking and hacking scene, which we'll get more into very soon. But originally, what got you interested in telecommunications? I was uh, stationed in Indian Mountain Air Force Station, Alaska. And uh, it was a very remote site. I was very lonely and wanted to keep in touch with all my friends back in California. And I discovered that you can make uh, calls I can make a call to Almaden Air Force Station using the Air Force Audubon lines, which is the which is their own separate communication system. And uh, I was, uh, and I would use that. I would call the I'd call the uh, Almaden base and say, "Hey, can you connect me to an off uh, an off base line?" And they said, "Sure, as long as it was not during duty hours." So, working in the Air Force, did this lead you to have a? understanding of the phone system and the the modern technology at the time. Yeah, the Audubon system was really cool because I was able to uh, call other interesting phone numbers. Like they had this one phone number. It's a NORAD, NORAD command line. And when you connect to that, you're on a big conference call where all the NORAD generals and stuff like that were all in this big party line and they were, they were uh, working on uh, attack scenarios and alerts and uh, exercises and military stuff. And when I was there also, uh, uh, we saw a UFO coming oh, wow. in from the north, uh, west. It flew over our site, made a right angle turn, and left to northeast. It was a whiteout outside, so you couldn't see anything outside because it was just totally like you could. Just, a whiteout is where you're where it's got a mixture with fog and ice, and you go, you go 30 feet out the front door and you're going to get lost. It's crazy. What was this UFO like then? Did it move like a, like a crazy speed? or? We got it going at about 5,000 miles an hour at 150,000 feet. After that, I mean, you were um, involved in pirate radio as well. I mean, did you get an interest in broadcasting and radio? How, how did that kind of work? So you did it from your van, is that right? Yeah, that was after I got out of the Air Force. Yeah. But during the time I was at Indian Mountain Air Force Station, I also had my own radio station. Because there was no radio. You couldn't pick up anything on the radio up there. You could only pick up Armed Forces Radio. And, they were, and the audio of the Armed Forces Radio was uh, basically uh, really crappy sounding because they put the audio over no ordinary phone lines. Uh, fidelity was really crappy. So I had, an, I had an alternate... I had alternate music, so when rock and roll was playing on Armed Forces Radio, I would play Middle of the Road or some other music. So I would always have different music than they have, so give people a choice of radio to listen to. And then later on, when I got out of the Air Force, I scarped up this really powerful uh, RF transistor with 75 watts. And I got the specs for it. I thought, gee, I might as well build a transmitter with this. So I did. We built a really, really small transmitter. It ran off of 12 volts, had about 75 watts of power. Uh, then we went up on Mount Amanam, which is a mountain overlooking San Jose, and uh, we would broadcast up there. And we would, and this was during the uh, this was during the uh, the late 60s, uh, early 70s, because what we would do is we would have Scannerbags drug commercials where you buy more dope for less at Scannerbags Drugs. <laughs> Well, let's just welcome um, Craig to the show as well, um, who's joined us. I mean, Craig, how did you meet John then, and what's kind of your, your background together? Uh, I met John in uh, 1994. He was given a talk on the internet at a, a kind of an offshoot of a rave um, in San Francisco. They had, they had the rave in one building, and they had this thing called the Parallel University in another. That was yeah, sort of Mega Triplets, actually, from the U.K., yeah, there was, you know, people that made everything out of hemp and things like that. And John was talking about the internet when hardly anyone really was talking about the internet. So, but nobody was really interested in what he was saying. And I was, and even though I'm not really a nerd, so to speak, um, I found him interesting. And uh, so I approached him afterwards and we just became friends. I looked after his house while he went to Australia for a while and became intertwined in his life in Marin County, California. And... I think I kind of always knew I was meant to write his story. <laughs> <laughs> well, what a story it is as well. Because, I mean, obviously we get into 
you discovering Freaking. I mean, was that when you were working on legal radio then, John? I mean, how did you find out about the Freaking scene? Well, uh, back in San Jose, uh, where I'd just gotten out of the Air Force, I got a call from Denny. Now, at that time, I was this was just slightly before I worked for a, a public, uh, non-commercial uh, FM radio station called KKUP. You were a DJ. Yeah, yeah, it was a legitimate licensed station, and I had a first-class FCC license. And so, uh, and so what I did was uh, I would have my show from 8 until 10, and I called myself the John T. Freak Show. And I would have underground music and uh, play, playing songs like King Crimson, uh, Pink Floyd, uh, and a whole bunch of other sort of opera rock kind of songs. Not the top 40 stuff, but but some really good underground rock with some long, long sets. I'd always play the longest cut on the album when I put it on the turntable. Yeah. And, then, and then, so I was at KKUP. So while I was at KKUP, uh, I got a call from, Aunt, from Alan McKittrick from Berkeley. He had heard me on the radio because I, I gave a demonstration of Blue Boxes on KPFA, another public station in Berkeley. And I showed it. I, I actually played the audio of me making the call and, stacking tandems and all these chirps and connection things which really looked, which really sounded really great and so and so after that show was over Waz had was listening to it and then i met Waz when he called me at cake up and he asked me if i could come down to berkeley he told me he'd built one i said let's not talk about it on the phone i'll just come down and see you in person next time i can so a few days later i go down to berkeley and called him up and said hey i'm on my way uh, I parked off campus, walked uh, walked quite a ways to his dorm, and uh, I went into the uh, dorm, and there was uh, there was Waz, there was John Gott, and there was uh, Steve Jobs, and Waz showed me his box. I looked at it, and he said it was all digital, and I says, but there's no analog signal in the box; it's all digital, and I listened to the tones, and it sounded really scratchy. But somehow, the mouthpiece would adjust the waveform just to the point where it barely would work. And I would say out of about 20 tries, you're lucky to get through about three or four times. Every single time you try to make a call on his box, you would drop a trouble card on the 4A switching tandem. And, that's, and, that, and then they can trace that back to the actual exchange that I came from. Or I didn't use his box, but somebody else did. This guy, Richard Caesar, found out about his box, bought the box, and I told, I warned him, I says, don't use this box from home. Mm. Whatever you do, don't write my phone number down in your address book. He was the only sighted person that I was in contact with. All the other blind people didn't have to write my number down. They all just memorized it, which was good for me. So what happened was uh, Richard got busted using Waz's box. My phone number was in his address list, and that's what led the FBI to me. So was I mean he also made a call to the Pope? Is that correct? Yeah, when I was in the dorm, uh, dorm, I uh, I told him he he actually told me. I says, "Can I call overseas?" I said, "Sure." Who do you want to call? I says, "Can I call the Pope?" I guess I don't know why he'd want to call the Pope. It's four thirty in the morning over there in Italy right now. So he said, uh, "I said, sure. Let's let's see what we can do." And I says. Hi, and then it says, hi, I'm so-and-so. I handed the phone over to Waz and let him take over the conversation at that point. Waz told uh, them that this is Henry Kissinger, and I call. I have to call the Pope. I have to confess. And Henry Kissinger had just traveled to Vietnam during that time that call was made. And the person at the other end of the call said to Waz, I says, are you calling from Vietnam? And Waz says, oops, and hung up. <laughs> but what an amazing story. And it just, I mean, kind of going back to, you know, pre-Blue Box, this, you know, you've got your name, Captain Crunch. Everyone knows yeah. the story, I'm sure, and, about and, yeah, infamous whistle. There's another Waz story I want to say, okay, too. Yeah, this was after I'd met him for the first time, uh, a week or several months passed. And uh, I was, uh, he was on his way home to, uh, to San Jose, from Berkeley. He stopped in Hayward at a payphone because his car broke down. So him and Jobs were together. Uh, Jobs says, let's see if the blue box works. 
And unfortunately, Waz didn't really hear me when I told him. I said, you never want to use them from pay phones because if you do, because you had to, back then you had to have the operator connected you to an 800 number. And when you, and you, when you bang out the number, the operator is going to hear it and suspect it. And so I had a way of doing it, but I didn't tell Waz because I didn't want Waz to even try it. So he did it anyway. And every single time he started to bang out the number, the operator came online. Are you finished? Because when you tweak the call, it shows the operator lights indicate that the uh, call connection was disconnected. Now, the operator goes, and then gets, goes on the line and says, are you done with the call before she pulls the connection? And, and uh, after several tries, he gave up. And then a cop car pulls up. So Waz and Jobs are sitting there at the payphone with their blue box in their hands. And the cop asked Waz and Jobs something about somebody. They were looking for somebody. And then the cop says, what's that you got in your hand? And Waz said, oh, it's my music synthesizer. And the cop was playing with a box and stuff like that. Finally, the cop handed the box back to, to Waz. And Waz said, and Waz said, Ged said, a guy by the name of Moog beat you to it. Because <laughs> he said it was a music synthesizer. And then the cop says, well, why? How come the tone sounds so bad? He says, well, it's not calibrated yet. <laughs> <laughs> Well, what was was like in those kind of early days, and and Jobs as well? I mean, what did you think of Steve Jobs? Did did you get on with him at first? Jobs and I, we met several times. I was living in Las Gatas. I had a weight set in the back. I was lifting weights. Invited Jobs to join me for lifting weights and stuff. So we didn't spend much time with that, but we basically just spent a little bit of time talking. And I went over to his house where he had in his garage where he was building this six bit computer using discrete TTL logic chips. And I said, what can you do with six bits? You can only call a count up to 64. But it was just a computer that he had built just to learn about it. And so uh, I wasn't that well connected with Jobs that much. Uh, we visited each other on several occasions. And then, and then he showed up at the Homebrew Computer Club. And then when, when Waz came out with the Apple I, demonstrating it at the Homebrew Computer Club, during the time of the uh, of the mapping se session was was in the back room typing in the code all in machine language to integer basic crazy he knew every single byte in that machine by memory and then he got it working and then at the at the random access period he demonstrated a basic program running on this computer that looked like a toy and the computer itself was really not in a in a case at that time it was just a board with another little board, looked like a little modulator, and that modulator connected to a TV set, and he was just using an ordinary TV set, and then he had a separate keyboard, and it was all just laid out on this table. It was like the, it was it was a wire wrapped board. It wasn't even had a PC board. Was that the precursor to the Apple One then? Yeah, that was yeah. the precursor to the Apple One. Then later on, uh, Waz and Jobs started selling blue boxes to make the money for printing for uh, having. I think like 25 PC boards made with the Apple One. And then they had the Apple One kind of sort of as a kit. And you could build an Apple One or you could, if you want, to buy one. And so they would make, they would make them and sell them in, 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 in Jobs Garage. And then they met with Mike Markolo and uh, Mike Scott. Those two were the two CEO investors. And Jobs arranged a meeting with them and showed them the computer. And he got them all excited, and then he was able to raise some funding for the thing. And it's in the book. All that stuff's in the book. So. Just to get to your and nickname as well, I mean, obviously there's a story about the, the finding the whistle in the cereal. What was, uh, how like, did that discovery okay, happen? That happened during one of the we – had, we had party lines and conferences, and the phone freaks would set up these conferences. They would actually social engineer a switchman to open up a sleeve on, the, on, on a bank of 10 numbers. So that, so that it would not be grounded. And then you can connect together and you could talk like, a, like in a party line. And so I was on one of those party lines talking to the phone freaks. They were all talking about this stuff about loops and conferences. I didn't know anything about that stuff. So that, that, and then eventually what happened was, well, well, I just call myself John from San Jose. He says, you could think of a better handle than that. I said, sure, why not? Why don't, I, why don't you just call me Captain Crunch in lieu of the whistle? And very often I would drive these kids, two or three kids in my van, out to, uh, out to uh, somewhere near the airport where you can get a direct connection to Vancouver. And once you get access to the Vancouver trunks, you can then use the whistle, the whistle calls. And I wasn't so good at it, but these guys were able to call all over the place using the payphones there. Do you still have one of the whistles? Uh, I do. Oh, we'd love a live demo. <laughs> so this here is what you can order from our Indiegogo website mm -hmm. 
it's a blue box. Well, it's not really a functional blue box, but it opens up. And you can keep all kinds of stash in there, <laughs> including a Captain Crunch whistle. You can get this from our Indiegogo website. It's only going to be available until the 14th of, the, of uh, July. But you want to blow it? You go like this. And you would dial a number that way. And that is a famous 2600 hertz tone. That is correct. Also, Esquire magazine did an article all about you in 1971, all about freaking. I mean, were you cautious oh about doing that interview at first? I didn't even want to do the interview. I mean, I didn't even want to do it. Uh, the phone freaks contacted Ron Rosenbaum. I, I didn't want them to contact Rosenbaum, but they did it anyway. I mean, they're all they're 17 ir irresponsible blind kids. They have no concept of what's cool and what isn't cool. So it was pretty much a, uh, it was pretty much kind of like a really bad situation. So I called Ron Rosenbaum back, and he started asking me some of the questions that the blind kids had, and I tried to clear him up on the thing. I said, look, Ron, I really don't want to be part of this interview. I, I consented to a little bit about it. I says, you know, just don't use my name, whatever you do. Uh, and uh, please respect my privacy and stuff like that because this is an illegal thing. And I don't want to get involved because if, if you interview me, I'm almost for certain going to get busted. So we, I talked to him for a while and they started asking me questions. I confirmed a few things and some other things I set him straight. And it was probably about a 20-minute conversation with him. And then after, after we broke the conversation, things went, things went on as normal. Uh, I would say about five or six weeks later, the, uh, the Esquire article came out. I can remember what happened at the time. I was, I was taking a Chem 1A class in San Jose City College, and I went down to the 7-Eleven store and saw the Esquire magazine. I took it back to my car because I like to sit in my car and study. It's nice and quiet there because I had a nice fan and a table set up and stuff. So I was sitting there like reading the magazine. I says, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Well, that just ends phone freaking as we know it today. It just laid it right out there on the line, man. Gave the frequencies. I mean, they weren't exact, but they gave the whole concept. And anybody reading that article could probably figure it out. Was certainly did. And Waz, when he took the, the article, was on his, on his coffee table in Jobs', in Jobs house. Was pulled up the article and read it, and he thought it was fiction. And then after reading it for a while, he says, that can't be fiction. So he says, let's go down to the, uh, let's go down to the Stanford Library. And they got this book on Bell System Technical Journal. And the Bell System Technical Journal gave all the frequencies of the blue box. And Waz says, oh, my God, it's true. It's really a true article. I got to get a hold of this guy. And so it took Waz quite a while to find me, but he did. What were the differences and changes in this freaking scene after the Esquire article? Well, obviously, of course, the authorities saw it. And immediately what they did was they, they, had, they had known for a while that Denny and Jimmy and myself were on these conference calls. There's nothing they could do about it because it wasn't illegal. And I would never blue box from home, and neither would Denny and anybody else. So obviously they knew that I was able to blue box, and they tried to bust me on several occasions. In fact, I had just left the payphone three minutes before the authorities came to bust me, so I just got out of there just in time. This was part of the FOIA because we requested our, our FBI files. And this came out also, I think, in Phil Apsley's book, uh, uh, Exploding the Phone. Mm -hmm. So anyway, after, after that, things started really getting hairy. I was still living in Las Gatas. I wasn't doing anything on the phone at the time at all. Uh, all I was doing was just you know, going to school, uh, studying, and doing my thing. But, uh, but that was enough. That was enough to bust me because... What they did was they had a grand, they, 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 they pulled in all these phone freak kids from San Jose. And all these phone freak kids in San Jose got 
had to testify before a grand jury. And one such person, Richard Caesar, had a uh, my phone number. And that was how they found me. They found me from a, my phone number being in his address book. Captain Crunch and my Los Gatos phone number, my regular home phone number. Were you looking over your shoulder all the time at that point then before you got busted? It must have been a nervous time. Well, after that, of course, uh, I, would, I, I would do some evasive driving techniques yeah. to evade being followed. I think Craig can tell you about that. We call it the Draper Maneuver. <laughs> I also had a modified receiver in my car that would pick up the FBI's radio frequencies and the police frequencies. It was kind of built into the car. And I had this converter device that would convert the uh, UHF, which normally would go from 430 to 470 megahertz. And FBI's frequency was 412.683. I know that really well. Hmm. And so that was a frequency that I would tune to. And every now and then I would catch a little bit of chatter on that channel. Sometimes it would be scrambled, but... I w if I'd see scrambled communication, I'd know it was the FBI because I know that they scramble their communications. Well, I mean, you know, after but, kind of the freaking became exposed, I mean, you, you kind of went more into computers and obviously you were part of the legendary Homebrew Computer Club, which was such a huge influence on the early days of personal computing. How did you initially find yeah. out about that and how did you join? Well, right after my bust, I met this guy who turned me on to this, this guy that's got a computer in his garage. His name is Alex Camrat. And he bought a computer for about $90,000. It had six terminal ports on it, eight terminal ports on it. And it had a little, little, little kind of a, a little office thing. You go in, there's, there's a little kind of a storefront there with a bunch of terminals and people using the terminals. And he would give me an account, a free account, because he, he kind of liked me, I guess. So I would go to the terminals. I'd learn basic. I'd learn how to program. And I said, wow, this computer's great. I can solve all my electronic formulas on it. So I was calculating out, uh, calculating out the capacitor resistor values for a, a, for a voice scrambler. And I needed to be able to have really super sharp filters, which could filter out the audio in certain frequencies. And to design those took a lot of extensive math. So I wrote a computer program to do it. And it saved me a lot of time. And then, and then one time, Alex saw the printout of my thing, and I used a teletype to print waveforms, not unlike what you can use a teletype to print a picture of somebody. And so it was like a little chart, and it would give me the waveform of what I, of the behavior of the thing with all the values in it, and even draw a schematic on the teletype. Alex saw that in the, on the, uh, in the trash. He called me in and he offered me a job. And that was about the time the Homebrew Computer Club started. I went. But first, before it started, uh, there were some people in Silicon Valley that had this thing called the People's Computer Club. It was a small little organization. It was, it was like uh, a non-profit thing. They had, they had two or three terminals connected to a PDP-8. And they would let kids come in and play Hunt the Wampus and all a bunch of these little computer games. And they had field trips. So all these different schools would bring these kids in to get them introduced to computers. And then one time, Howie, the guy, Howie, the guy who ran the, the facility, would have potluck dinners every Wednesday. He'd go in and he'd bring your food, and everybody'd sit down and they'd talk and eat and they'd talk about computers. Eventually, they, that, became the, that became the West Coast Computer, uh, I mean, not the West, the Homebrew, yeah, the homebrew Computer yeah. Club. I mean, thinking of the, the people that were there, obviously, was, was there, George Morrow, uh, you know, some very famous names in the early days of personal computing. Yeah, what we, used to happen we, at an average oh, meeting? Oh, the meeting, the meeting was really crazy. Mm. Uh, initially, there was only like 30 people in Gordon French's garage. Later on, it just got so big, they had to move it to the, uh, they went to, then they went into a classroom at one of the uh, middle schools in Palo Alto. And that was the time that Steve Dompierre demonstrated uh, a, how, the, how the Altair 880 could play Fool on the Hill on a six transistor radio by generating RF frequencies. And he, it was a resounding success. This guy was just blew everybody away. The next meeting after that, there was more than 100 people there. You couldn't have it in, the, in that small classroom anymore. So they worked out a deal with the, uh, with the uh, uh, Stanford Linear Accelerator Center. They had a big auditorium. The only thing that they couldn't do, because it was a, uh, an educational facility, they wouldn't allow any commercial transactions to take place inside the facility. So most of the commercial transactions would take place in the parking lot. 
outside during random access period. There's two, there's two different kind of periods. There's a mapping period where you, where somebody had a question or they wanted to offer some information on where to get some new chips for memory or whatever. Uh, the Altair 880 had just come out. People were building Altair kits and uh, people were asking questions about how to get it working. And, and so somebody would ask a question, say, hey, do you know where I could get this RAM? Or, hey, I've got a problem here with my synchronization of my video or, or my audio. How do I get it connected to a computer? And then somebody would raise their hand and they say, and they say oh, okay, well, let's talk during the random access period. So you map out who you want to talk to during the first part. And then the guy that raised their hand, you get together with them during the, uh, during the random access period. It's about an hour. And that was during the time that Waz actually uh, demonstrated his Apple, Apple One computer. Do you remember seeing that first Apple demo then? Yeah, I was there. It was, it was in the auditorium over, over on some tables on the side, kind of in a hallway thing there. And Waz had a table set up. He had the keyboard and the PC board, the modulator, and a cassette recorder. Actually, he didn't have the cassette recorder then because he hadn't written the code that could save it on a cassette recorder. He had a keyboard, so he used the keyboard to type in the code using the keyboard. He did that during the random access period. He had about 15 or 20 minutes of demo time before some nerd tripped on the cord and unplugged the computer. <laughs> and since you can't save it because it, no, it was not volatile memory, so you lose it. Of course, was immediately went home and tried to work on a way of saving the thing on a cassette tape. So that was, that was kind of really cool. But there were the seeds of what went on to become the, the richest company in the world. Yeah, yeah. That was, yeah, that was just the time Apple started, started doing. They were, they, they were building kits in a Byte store, in Palo Alto Byte store. I can remember one January going down to the Byte store, and it snowed in Mountain View of all places. Oh, wow. I mean, it never snows there but it actually snowed and it stuck on the ground. It was crazy. I mean, here I was in this computer store, snowing outside, inside talking to the store people. And what they had to sell, they had to sell these computer surplus uh, modems, like acoustical coupler modems. They were selling uh, boards and stuff like that that people were making. Uh, Leif Belsenstein was selling some boards, I think. And then uh, Daniel... Uh, can't remember his name. He did the uh, he did the penny whistle 103 modem. I think leaded that. So they were just selling these little boards. They weren't even they weren't even put together in any kind of boxes. They were just out there, and the store was very sparse shelf. And it was then that that was just before I went to Pennsylvania. Then after I came back from Pennsylvania, I got hooked up with a fourth interest group booth people, and uh, the fourth. Uh, I had a fourth implementation on the Apple II, and I was selling that at the computer store with handwritten documentation in baggies. Oh, well. Wow. <laughs> I was selling them for 45 bucks. Well, you were also an early employee at Apple. Um, what were you working on? The uh, telephone interface board. It was a board that uh, Steve asked me to design. I did the initial design, and Steve modified the design and made it cleaner and losing less chips. I had to write more code to get it to work, but hey, Code is cheap. Hardware isn't. That's what Waz always says. So I got the telephone interface board working to the point where I could dial some numbers and stuff. I left the cassette tape on Steve's desk. It was really late at night. I went home. Had to, I had a morning class at De Anza. And then when I got back after my class at Apple Computer, Steve Jobs dumped on me like you wouldn't believe. I said, what happened? Why, why are you mad at me? It turned out that Steve is a prank programmed the phone board to call Steve's home phone number over and over again. Oh, wow. <laughs> and he couldn't get rid of the call. It just kept ringing after he hung up. And so he was ticked off. Yeah, but that made so, you popular. <laughs> yeah, it did. And, and the phone board was just a little ahead of its time. Number one, there was no legal way to connect the phone board to a phone line because of the AT&T restrictions. Eventually, D.C. Hayes had enough legal clout to open up the door to be able to allow people to connect to a phone line. But by that was like two years later. And so the phone board didn't actually become very, could be a product at that point. Well, after Apple, you um, moved on to EasyWriter, um, the word processor. Is it true that you you're actually writing that when you were serving a prison sentence? Yeah, because after I got back, you know, I had to go through a court revocation hearing. And the judge sentenced me to a work furlough program in Alameda. So basically, I would go to jail at night. And then I would go to my room and just sit down 
and go over the code that I had written during the day. During the day, I was allowed to go out. I didn't have a really job, so what I did was I faked a job. I had some Berkeley hippie friends that had this receiving studios, which is nothing more than a practice studio space for this Berkeley people to play music and stuff. And so they had a, che- they had a, a business account. So I would give receiving studios money from the money that I had saved up and whatever. And then that would be my paycheck. And then they would then write a check to me, which I'd take the check back to the work furlough program, give it to the officers. I'd sign the check and then they would put that money into my, into my commissary account. And so that was my so-called quote unquote job. It was during the gas crisis. So part of this, of my work furlough program, I'd ride my bike from uh, Alameda to Berkeley. And of course they'd follow me. I didn't care. I went to I went to my work. I had a phone. I had a computer, and I had my Apple II. Then Waz came along, and Waz said uh, he would loan me a Qume printer because he found out I was working on Easy Writer. He said that's a really good that's a really good application for the Apple II, and he supported me 100%. He got me a Qume printer, and so and so I it was written in fourth, and so with the Qume printer I was able to use proportional spacing on the text, not just add an extra space between the words to make the words line up, which looks really crappy, but actually add a little bit of space between the characters, which made it look really professional. And on a Kim printer, which is a daisy chain kind of printer, it looked really high quality. And then we, and then we demonstrated it at the fourth West Coast Computer Fair. How ironic, fourth <laughs> West Coast Computer Fair. It turned out that Matthew McIntosh who I met at the Apple Pie meeting just before the work furlough, I got sentenced to the work furlough, would have a booth at the West Coast Computer Fair. Now, the work furlough people allowed me to go to the computer fair uh, during the day, but it had to be back by 7.30, so I couldn't go to any parties. But I did go to the, I, we did have a booth there at the Apple Pie booth in the, in the nonprofit section. Of course, you weren't allowed to sell anything, but we did anyway, kind of under the table. So during that time, I, we had made copies of the discs of Easy Rider. We couldn't copy them fast enough after they saw the demo. We were right next door to the fourth, group, fourth interest group booth people. So they asked us what language it was written in. And we said, fourth. You want to know about fourth? Pointed next door. The guys over at the fourth booth were asking what applications were written in fourth. Ah, go to Easy Rider booth. Go to the <laughs> Apple Pie booth. They're demonstrating a word processor written in fourth. And it was like a symbiotic relationship. It couldn't be more perfect. So during all this time I was developing EasyWriter, it was a perfect programming environment. I would struggle with the code during the day. And just before I was ready to go back to work, back to the work furlough program, I would print out a complete hard copy, put it in my binder, took it back to the work furlough program, and looked at a fresh source listing of the code. And then I sit down, point with a little pencil and paper as if I knew what I was doing and mark up the code and make some changes, you know, mentally and not on a computer, but on the actual source code. So it trained me to really work out the code in my, mem- in my head more than anybody, more than I ever could have if I'd done it just on a computer because I wouldn't have had that opportunity to examine the code with such detail because I had at least six hours of time back when I got back because I, I was there working from 7.30 until like 1 or 2 and then I'd go to bed get up again at 7.30 when the Reveille started, have some breakfast, grab my bag lunch they gave me, and head off to work. Well, you did and, mention in there that you didn't get time for partying, but you did get time for partying in the 90s. I mean, Ravi and I were talking to you before we started recording this. In the 90s, you, you got really into rave culture and just traveled the yeah. world, going to raves and trance music events. and. Oh, absolutely. I was, well, I got, ra- got started in raves because I was part of the cypherpunks uh, group. Cypherpunks were, were supporting PGP. There's a bunch of people set up by John Gilmore at John Gilmore's company. And uh, we'd meet every month, or actually twice a week, and we would share ideas about PGP. I took a copy of PGP that was written in, on a Linux operating system and converted it over to the Mac, because I had a Mac. And that was my contribution to PGP. So anyway, so I went to several parties, and I would set up a kiosk. At the time, my lower back was really giving me some issues. I was seeing a chiropractor, 
and uh, and I would set up this booth there, and I would try my hand at dancing, and it didn't do so well. But that hurt after five minutes, so I gave up that idea and just kept at the uh, kiosk. And I was giving away PGP discs, so every rave I got invited for free. And then I went to my I went to my the doctor. What am I? I started get working on my ability to dance. So after I'd say a couple months. I felt a little more brave. I started getting into the dancing. And the first rave I went to was called Let Freedom Rave. It was the 4th of July. And it was at the, uh, it was at the Livermore Racetrack. It was an amazing party. And that's when I dropped acid for the very first time. <laughs> Did you find a lot of kind of transition between the hippie world and the rave world? And were there a lot yes. of old friends yes. around there? Well, you got to remember that there was at least a decade and a half, maybe two decades of time lapse between the hippie era and the rave era. The rave era started in the, in the late 80s and early 90s, but the hippie era started around 65 to 68 and 69. So those were the two eras that you had to deal with. So they weren't exactly overlapping. I mean, there was this 70s culture, uh, Cold War kind of a thing where industrial complex and of course the 60s were really against that because uh, the hippies were really against that and that was when i quit my job when i found out that the that the stuff i was working on was going to be used for missiles i had nothing to do with those guys it required a security clearance anyway so screw them so i didn't work for them anymore instead i worked over a national semiconductor for a while characterizing op amps and uh, that was made way before the rave scene so at the rave scene, basically, I just got really hooked into it. I just, it was great. It was a way to exercise, a way for me to socially interact with friends. A lot of the people at these rave parties were into technology, into, into the same people that I would work in when I was working in computers. Undorf, who was, who was head of the uh, SF Rave's mailing list, who had written the Apache web server. A lot of other people were really prominent programmers that got involved. Eric Gullickson was one of the persons who did a lot of the cypherpunk things. So all these people that I met during that time were into the rave scene. So I, I joined the SF Rave's mailing list, and I went to damn near every single rave that came out every single weekend after that. Well, you know, back then, and, John, you were like really one of the first bloggers I ever remember seeing. So you used to write reports from Australia and yeah. stuff about your experiences. Yeah, 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 yeah. I joined the, I joined the OS Rave's mailing list and the SF Rave's mailing list. And I contacted the Australia's mailing list, and I says, I says, I'm thinking of going to Australia. Any of you guys want to want to help me out, get contact with people out there? Well, I said, and I hooked across, I hooked across some Australians who met me at the airport, took me back to his flat for a while. I stayed there for a few days, and while I was there, uh, I went to the King's Cross area on Darlinghurst in in Sydney, and I got myself a flat for 150 bucks a month. It was just a single room flat with a mattress and a chair and a table. That was all I needed, just a place to crash. And then I went to all the Australian rave things. And of course I of course I had my computer and I had a phone line. And so I would I would write rave reports to every rave I went to. And everybody loved my rave reports. Yeah, they were great. <laughs> yeah. And so I did it both in Aus Raves and I did it in SF Raves. Well, you've recently achieved fame with a whole new audience going on uh, Ready Player One. Uh, did you know you'd be featured in that book? Now, basically what happened was, I don't know if you're familiar with the story or not. Yeah. You had to find, you had to find these keys that can unlock these things that can give you, give you further al along in this so-called game you had to play with this game designer who died and willed all his money to the person that can win this game. And uh, one of the things they had to do was they had to, they got the Captain Crunch whistle, and the Captain Crunch whistle was supposed to unlock one of the keys. And they left that out of the movie. But it's in the book, but not in the movie. Well, that must have got a whole new audience interested in you, which is why now is a great time for you to write the book Beyond the Little Blue Box. So wh why did you think the time was right for you to tell the story? I think it was Craig that inspired me, uh, mostly for the book. I'll let Craig yeah. explain that. I think I first thought about 2006, I was like, I'm going to write his book. I don't know why, I don't know how, but I am. 2010, I told him, and he said, you've never written anything, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then he had various, you know, professional ghostwriters attempt to work with him and write it, but his his writing is quite hard to decipher if you don't know him personally. And, you know, it, it, 
it can be difficult to work with sometimes. So oh, yeah. uh, it just it just ended up being me because I I, I had ed edited his the text on his website for years. So I was good at ed editing his his words and and I also wanted to write it rather than just him talking about himself to to probably you know what to me seemed like a kind of a smaller audience. I thought well. He has a story that a lot of people would be interested in, so I wanted to write it in kind of layman's terms about him. So it ended up being an authorized biography rather than an autobiography with help. So it's really about him, and and I I, I digress into some of my own things in the book, but it's it you know it's, it's it's mainly about John or me and John working together, or me and John being on adventures together, uh, because we we had a good few of them. Yeah, over the years. Burning Man Festival, of course. <laughs> Yeah, lots of things. Uh, so it it, it 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 wasn't like it meant it was meant to happen now, but maybe it was. Uh, I I started it in 2014, and uh, we got done with it last year. But then there was all the rounds of editing and all that, and then we thought, right, let's run a Kickstarter, get it, get some funding to get it distributed, and we've just kind of been going from there. We we sold like 700 copies on the Kickstarter, and we're continuing to sell copies on Indiegogo now. Yeah, so people want to get hold of a copy. Indiegogo is a place to go. Yeah, go to for now. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it'll be on Amazon uh, after the Indiegogo, I think. Uh, but we wanted to have the signed copies, kind of personally controlled by our project, um, and we want to keep that on Indiegogo for as long as possible, so that people, until we've sold all the copies that John signed, <laughs> and yeah. then then they'll just be like normal, unsigned books available on Amazon. And you've got some good stretch goals then, John. And some good perks. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, Ali, one of our persons who helped us with a Kickstarter project, helped us a lot in organizing these perks, uh, getting these blue boxes made and the Captain Crunch whistles. They were actually 3D printed. Yeah, we, we have um, the, the little kind of personal items like the, the replica. It's a, actually a replica of Woz's blue box, the one that's in the museum. Uh, yeah, and we've got the whistles uh, 3D printed with our logo on them. Well, I think the fact that you can get hold of a Captain Crunch whistle because the originals are collector's items now, aren't they? They go for a lot of money on eBay. They're really hard to find. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah we, they're, they go for like 80 bucks a piece or something yeah. now. Um, yeah. So we thought, you know, we're, we're never going to find enough to actually make them a perk of anything. So we uh, found a guy who, um, you know, basically built a 3D uh, printed version and gave us all the, the files for that. And so we had them made with our logo on it instead of the Captain Crunch logo. But they do blow the 2600. Yeah, they are accurate. And they look the same. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're identical. It, it wouldn't work with, you, I mean, with your mobile phone that you can't blow it down your iPhone and get free calls, unfortunately. <laughs> no, this system has long since been changed. Many, many, many decades before the cellular system came back online. Well, John, you know, reading the book, how have you found, you know, reading about your life story? What do you think of Beyond the Little Blue Box? I, I think it's great. I think Craig did a great bang smash, 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 bang, smash up job. <laughs> I mean, he was, you know, because, got to remember, he kind of reworded, reworded things better than I could ever imagine of doing and making it so it's understandable. And so when it came to part of the discussion where I had to convey to Craig the, uh, the details of like what it's, what it's like to blow off a tandem, I mean, I mean what, is, what does a blowing off a tandem mean to the layman person? It means nothing. But in Craig's words of describing it were really good, and anybody who didn't understand it would understand it. And that's where a lot of the stuff, he really polished my writing up to the point where my stupid ass technically writing was just totally incomprehensible. And what Craig did was translated it into human talk. Yeah, and another unrelated thing I did about a year ago was I wrote an article on the SS7 network, Signaling System 7. This is basically the uh, convergence of AT&T's connection between the different cities where they were using the N1 signaling, which is a blue box, the SS7 was using their whole digital network system, and uh, some people in Germany from SR Labs uh, demonstrated how easy it is to get into the SS7 network 
And once you get into that SS7 network, you can geotrack the phone, you can intercept SMS messages, and you can intercept voice calls as well. Incoming calls to the phone, not so much as outgoing calls. But you can actually do it using the CAML system, C-A-M-L, they call it. And so I explained that, and I wrote this article and published it on steemit.com, S-T-E-E-M-I-T.com. And it's SS7 security flaws. And, uh, wow, I've been living off of the royalties of that because basically uh, people who read it donate cryptocurrency, which is a Steemit currency, which is not Bitcoin but a different currency. Their own coin, yeah. And I lived off of that for like almost four months. <laughs> and then I started getting into Bitcoin trading and that kind of pulled me through some of my financial dire needs as well. It's crazy. Well, John, you did mention that, you know, you, you make it widely known that you're not a wealthy man, but obviously was and jobs went on to become billionaires. I mean, have you ever kind of, does that kind of ever resent? I don't know. I was at the wrong place at the wrong time, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, right when this thing happened, I was in Lompoc Federal Prison doing my time. And that's when the Apple II started coming out. I missed a lot of opportunities there. So there's been a lot of opportunities that I missed, you know. I was sort of like, I guess, uh, the black sheep or something. Well, you can read more about it in the book. It's called Beyond the Little Blue Box, um, available from Indiegogo and hopefully Amazon soon. We'll uh, put a link to that in our show notes at theretrohour.com. I know we've run out of time, but uh, John and Craig, I just want to say thank you so much for joining us on the show this week. It's been a pleasure talking to you and getting your stories. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity to tell my story. Um, I I just, like, as I'm listening to John, I just think, you know, the thing about the book is it also includes a lot of things that people don't know that John was involved in because they never got off the ground because of his bad luck or bad timing or, you know, like a, a touch-tone phone video game in, like, what year, John? 1980? 77. Or 77, I'm sorry. Um, using, yeah. the, using the Charlie board technology. that they, It got busted just before that got completed, so that was out the window as well. Yeah, this was really cool. You could use the touchstone pad to control the Pong game, and the Pong game would broadcast over your cable network. So, you know, the book the book has some things in it that people don't even know about, about you know. Yeah, like it's... my military, my military service, what I was doing in the military. That's None of that's been discussed anywhere. Well, I can't wait, yeah. to, wait to read it, guys. I ordered my copy last week, and I'd implore anyone that's interested in the history of personal computing or technology in general to get hold of a copy of the book. Thanks. Great. Great to have you on, guys. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Appreciate it.